Another episode of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And today I'm joined by, well, I think it's he's an industry legend, Phil King from Regal Fund Management. And I've known Phil for a long time, and this is the first time we've connected for some time. We used to work together many, many years ago at Macquarie Bank. And of course, Phil now is the CIO of Regal Funds Management and founded the business back in 2004, I think it was. Uh, Phil was a, an equities analyst at Macquarie for over five years, also worked at KPMG from 87 to 94 as a chartered accountant, and he was inducted into the Funds Management Hall of Fame in 2019. So I told you he was an industry legend. So I'm really delighted and thrilled to have Phil on the couch today, and we're going to talk about a whole range of subjects. So welcome, Phil. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, hi, Henry. Thanks for having me. And it has been a long time. I do remember when I first met you, it was in the early 90s. You were a big swinging prop trader at Macquarie and I was a humble junior research analyst. So, uh, yeah, no, great to see you again. How times have changed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was a long time ago. Just before we kick off, i just uh, just remind everyone listening that it is general advice only. So please do your own research Contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas, or insights in this podcast. It is general advice only. So, Phil, welcome. Let's get the first question out of the way because uh, I spend a lot of time in the newsletter talking about LICs. I'm a bit of an LIC fan, and I call them my hot tub time machines because a lot of the time you can buy an LIC at a discount to the assets it has, And, and many of these LICs have kind of got the memo and a lot more transparent it used to be. Uh, so in terms of your RF1 or Regal, you trading at a premium. Why, why do you think that you trade at a premium and others trade at a discount? Yeah, no, great question, Henry. And um, look, look, I think it's just because uh, we've had very good returns since we launched the Regal Investment Fund in June 2019. We've annualised returns of around 39% per annum in terms of growth in net asset value. Um, and that's obviously, you know, at the upper end of LICs and LITs, and that's something we're extremely proud of. And I think, you know, what we've always said is that it's much more important to invest in a high-quality LIC or LIT uh, rather than try and save, save a few pennies uh, by buying something at a discount. And I think in the long run, um, the best performing portfolios will be those that contain high quality LICs rather than those that have tried to buy things on the cheap. Certainly, you're right, I, I think, Phil. You know, looking at your performance, I've got uh, your latest August newsletter here. Your performance is absolutely staggering. Last 12 months, 43.6%, 39% since inception. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a track record you've got there. No wonder you've been inducted as an industry legend it's uh, it's hardly surprising really it's fantastic congratulations no thanks henry um yeah no we're very proud of those returns as i said what we do in the regal investment fund is i think a little bit different from what some other people do we actually provide a portfolio of some of our best strategies this provides investors with diversification uh, provides uh, investors with exposure to some of our more trading orientated strategies like our global alpha strategy as well as our some more longer-term proven track record strategies like our market neutral strategy. 
as well as some of the more exciting strategies like our emerging companies and smaller company strategies. And so I think having this blend of different strategies is one reason why uh, the returns have been um, so good. So, Phil, can I, can I just ask a little aside? How big's the team around at Regal? You, you've got, you guys obviously got a pretty established business around there. You've been going for a long time now. How big's your team? Yeah, we've got close to 40 people. Um, wow. Almost 10 in our Singapore office and with the remainder of us based in Sydney. And so we have, I think, one of the strongest research teams in Australia uh, we think it's very important to, you know, do our research. And so, for example, we have two medical doctors uh, researching healthcare stocks for Regal. We have a, you know, Glencore veteran researching mining stocks. And so we have a very deep um, research team, as well as, you know, lots of other people on board as well. It's funny, isn't it? You mentioned mining stocks. There, A lot of fund managers sort of steer clear of mining stocks. And you know, I'm forever hearing people say, "Oh, you know, they're they're, they're too cyclical, they're too uh, they're too dependent on the underlying commodities." But you guys don't have the same sorts of issues. No, no, we're aware of you know the big forces of ESG, and I, I think that's great. I think it's very important that investors are aware of of some of the um, environmental imperatives that the world of is facing. Uh, but at the same time, you know, everyone uses a lot of the products that come from mining companies. Uh, you know, you can't build buildings from steel, uh, from windmills. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we'll always need to continue to mine things. The point you make, which is that a lot of investors shun mining companies, I think, creates the opportunity. The funny thing is, Henry, when I started at Macquarie, uh, when you were there, I think half the research team was in mining and half the research team was in industrials. And, in fact, mm. if you go back a little bit further, 50 years or so, Half, more than half the Australian stock market was mining stocks and the financial sector was about 10%. And that reversed um, over the last 50 years and now we've got close to 40-odd percent or at times close to 50% in financials and uh, maybe only 10 or 20% in mining stocks. The most successful investors in the last 10 or 20 years have often been the ones that have ignored the mining sector. Um, and that, to us, is the opportunity. And as a result, we think... The mining stocks are trading too cheap. I think it's one of the most exciting parts of the market to invest. It's funny, isn't it? Because the, the mining stocks of today don't, well, they certainly have shrugged off some of the, the bad habits of the past. It, you know, 10 years ago, I guess, a lot of the mining stocks, when they made a pile of money, they went and then blew that money on some ill-advised takeovers and acquisitions and, and pretty much wasted that shareholder of goodwill and those funds. Whereas now we're seeing... Uh, mining stocks actually being generous to shareholders. We're actually seeing the BHPs and the Rios and the Fortescues and these kind of companies paying quite substantial, in some cases Fortescue, very substantial dividends. That's been quite a change, hasn't it? Yeah, no, it's great. It's great for investors, firstly, because as you highlight, they are giving great returns back to shareholders and that's what I think management should be doing. But secondly, it also means that there's been very little investment in new capacity, and so the supply side outlook for the mining sector looks great at the moment. There's been very little new mines in many commodities open up. And on top of that, it's getting much harder to find economic, or economic deposits in commodities such as copper. And so I think that's part of the reason I think the outlook looks so good. Okay, well, we, we now have, we've got an Australian equity market, which is pretty much at all-time highs. We've got, looking around the world as well, we've got global markets at all-time highs. 
Where do you see the current opportunities from here, or is it is it something that you're looking for a pullback, or is it just still uh, all clear and let's keep looking for opportunities? Where do you see those opportunities at the moment? Well, just in the mining sector that we're talking about, I think provides one of the best opportunities. And I agree, there are parts of the market that are looking tired. There's parts of the market that are looking expensive. But what I think we find in situations like now is that there's new stocks and new sectors that come through and provide new leadership for the stock market. And that's certainly our view. Um, and I think mining is one sector that will provide that leadership in the Australian stock market. And, you know, this is certainly not a prediction, but, you know, if you look back at where we were 40 or 50 years ago with the Aussie, with the mining sector representing 50 or 60% of the stock market, um, that just shows you the sort of extent that, you know, the mining sector can grow over time. In terms of outlook, look, we asked super bulls. We're, we're bulls on a super resource cycle. And I know that's a throwaway line for many journalists and that, but we are genuinely bullish on the long-term outlook for the Australian mining sector. And we're bullish because the valuation looks good. As I said earlier, the supply side looks uh, good from an investor perspective because there's been so little investment. And I think the demand side has improved a lot. You know, it's amazing how resilient commodity prices have been in the face of one of the largest recessions in history. And what we're going to see over the next few years is some of the greatest fiscal stimulus since um, uh, World War II with big investments in infrastructure programs right around the world. And I think this is going to be very, very positive. On top of that, you've got the decarbonisation theme where there's going to be uh, some fundamental shifts from things like uh, internal combustion engine cars to electric vehicles. Um, and that's only going to accelerate in our view as well as just electric, uh, electricity storage more generally. So there's a lot of changes that are occurring in the world. This is going to require a lot of um, metals and other um, commodities. Um, and I think this means that the demand side outlook for mining is, is very, very positive. So but we're very, very bullish on the mining sector. And I think that's one reason the um, Australian stock market should continue to grind higher over the next few years. And the other part of the market that we're most excited about is technology, and not so much the large-cap technologies which are trading on very full valuation, but we're finding lots of little tech stocks in Australia that trade um, on very reasonable valuations, on valuations that we think could double or triple over time, that are what we call global leaders in their little niches. And that, I think, is very exciting because um, a lot of these stocks have started performing very well, and we still see lots of upside. I, I noticed in your latest report that you're quite big into uh, Big Tin Can, which I've been a, a fan of for a little while, as well as um, Dubber, uh, which has been a, an amazing success story. And I remember seeing Dubber a few years ago and thinking, you know, if, if one client starts to, to take up the technology, then another will and another will and another will. And I guess the whole work from home thing has, has just changed the whole basis for Dubber and being able to record uh, people's phone calls for um, for those you know, quality assurance purposes that we hear about. It has been a remarkable ride. So there's certainly been some great opportunities in those stocks. Any other stocks in that sector that you think, wow, this is um, very undervalued, we should be um, we should be looking at these ones? Yeah, you're right. Dub has been a great stock for us. The whole work from home um, situation has been very positive. They've got relationships with Zoom. They've got relationships with uh, Microsoft Teams. Uh, Cisco, people like that, as well as some of the big global telcos like AT&T. So Dub has been great. Big Tin Can, as you highlight, I think the outlook for Big Tin Can is better than ever. 
But some of the other stocks in the portfolio that, that we really like at the moment are things like Life360. Now, Life360 is a, um, it's an app that families use to uh, communicate and track their family members with. And they've got something like 32 million users globally, just upgraded their revenue forecast again for something like over 120 million US dollars. Um, and so they're very much in a sweet spot. And one of the things that's most exciting is that they're going to benefit from the world when the world comes out of lockdown because what they do is they allow you to track your family members and work out where your family is. And it's slightly creepy, isn't it, Phil? Come well, on. I see a smile there a little bit, Henry. It's, I, 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 I look at it and think, well, it's slightly creepy. I'm not sure I want to know sometimes well, look, where my family let me just is. Say, look, you can turn the app off when you're going down the pub and you've told your wife that you're still in the office, Henry, so you'll be okay. Yeah, that's, okay. I'll have to remember to do that, Phil. Yeah, yeah, but, um, you know, it's very popular. As I said, 32 million users globally, growing very, very strongly. And we'll benefit when, say, the US market goes back to school and, and parents can keep track of their kids more. Um, and they've just made a very exciting acquisition, which will allow them, uh, for family members, to uh, track children who are too young to have their own phones. And so that's just going to up a, open up a new market for them. And, and they've got a Zuckerberg as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, the founder Randy. Of the, yeah, yeah, that's right, Randy. That's yes. uh, Randy's the sister of um, Mark who uh, founded Facebook, and so that's very exciting. We think if Life360 was listed in the US, it, it would be trading at, you know, a multiple of where it is today. Mm. And that's certainly one option that they're considering is that, you know, they may list in the US at some stage. Now, now you guys have got a, a long short fund, haven't you? So you, uh, for those of you that are listening that don't know what a long short fund is, basically you, you counter some of the market risk by having – uh, some stocks that you short, which you think will underperform against ones that you're long, which you think will outperform. In a raging bull market like we have at the moment, is there value in having short positions, do you think? Look, it's a great observation. Um, and I think, yeah, it goes without saying that it's a lot easier to short in a bear market than a bull market. And certainly shorting in a bull market is tough. But shorting is less competitive than basically buying shares. Anyone can buy shares. But there's only a very small minority of investors who can actually short, which is selling shares before you buy them and benefiting from any fall in the share price. And so traditionally, we've added more alpha on the short side than the long side, um, because it is less competitive, we think. But look, it has got tougher for, for most people that short in the last few years. And it's got tougher on the short side, just because interest rates are so low. And so valuations are probably become less important. A lot of very expensive stocks have continued to get more expensive. And so for an investor like Regal that relies on valuation metrics to aid us with our decision-making process, low interest rates can make it tough. We've also seen some very big macro factors impact the market. We saw the pandemic last year, and then we saw some big fiscal stimulus programs. And so for a bottom-up investor, fiscal stimulus and the impact of fiscal factors more generally can be difficult for, for us to predict. And then one of the other interesting features of the market in the last few years has just been the impact of passive investors and retail investors. And, you know, passive investors are investors that invest in uh, index funds and ETFs, and they try and track the stock market. And what happens there is that, you know, when investors invest in these ETFs and index funds, the funds just end up buying index and so 
the stocks in the index continue to get bigger and bigger, these index funds just push them up more and more. And so that can be a challenge, um, but it can also create opportunities um, as stocks exit and enter these indices. And then the other big feature of the last year or two is just the sheer increase in retail investors. And a lot of investors have been using uh, services such as Robinhood in the US. You know, there's a few theories going wrong that a lot of people are getting bored at home and have got nothing better to do than Mm. invest in the stock market. But certainly the number of um, retail investors investing in the market is a lot higher than ever before. And that certainly uh, means that things trade a little bit differently to, to what they have at times. And there's been a high, a few high-profile examples of that in stocks like GameStop in the US. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I'm looking around today while we're recording this um, this podcast. The uranium sector here, we were talking about resources earlier, but the uranium sector here is just going absolutely bananas, absolutely nuts. I mean, even ERA, which is a massive blast from the past, uh, up in uh, the Northern Territory with the Ranger Project. You know, they're, they're just going mental at the moment. If it's not nailed down in the sector, people are buying them. It, it's extraordinary. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's certainly true. We're, we're lucky that we're on the right side of this move in uranium and we lo- own some of the local producers in Australia and so it's been a, a very good period for our portfolio. Certainly, we see a lot more upside to the uranium price um, and, and, you know, what, what some people are, are doing is they're likening uh, the movement in uranium to, to Bitcoin. And the thing about that is if enough people believe it's true, it probably yeah. will be true. And so we're actually seeing this situation in Australia and globally in the last couple of years where uranium producers have been raising money not to start new mines but to actually buy uranium from other producers. And so they buy uranium from other producers and store it and obviously in, in the hope that uranium prices will go up in, in the next few years. And this looks like it's it's starting to be true. I think uranium's moved from something like $30 to $43 just in the last couple of weeks. And what we're seeing is that just a huge increase in interest and buying in uranium. You know, there are some people speculating it could go well over $100 very, very quickly. Um, and that would obviously would be very positive for some of the locally listed uranium producers like Paladin. I guess at the moment that the big move, I mean, the spot spot market in uranium is pretty thin and Rick Sprott buying and tweeting about how much he's buying in the spot market is, is really feeding into this, this frenzy, I guess, with the uranium at the moment, as well as some COVID issues with uh, Kazakhstan and, and production there as well and Cameco too. Just going back to how you identify good stocks and, and, and even a theme like, I guess, uranium. What, what's your process? How, how does your team go through uh, trying to find these good stocks that are out there? Well, we spend a lot of time meeting with corporates. We meet with brokers. We meet with company customers, suppliers, and we follow you know a lot of companies in Australia. And what we're trying to do is uh, find those stocks on the long side that will go up in price and those on the short side that will go down. And to do that, we follow a four-step stock selection process, the first and most important for us is valuation. We want to buy those cheap stocks and we want to short those stocks that that are expensive. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time determining the valuation of our stocks and that's where our 
strong research team comes into play. I've been buying shares for 40 years. I've been shorting shares for close to 20. What I've found is that having another three steps in our process just helps us to improve our investments, helps us to minimise our mistakes. Um, that's on both the long and the short side. So those three more steps in our process after valuation are secondly, macro. What are the macro factors impacting this stock? And so, for example, Paladin, you know, we like the valuation, even though it might look expensive on $30 uranium. If when we invested it, you know, putting in $60 or $70 uranium into the model made it look very, very cheap. And then the second step, macro, if we put this uranium backdrop uh, behind it with a very thinly traded spot market and a lot of money coming into the sector, then obviously there's many scenarios where uranium could be a lot higher. And so that's what we call a positive macro backdrop. The third step is, is the catalyst and what's going to be the catalyst for the stock to move higher. And so with uranium, it was quite easy with, with so many funds like Sprott and the others raising money and buying uranium on the spot market. You know, it was our view, our strong view that uranium was going to move higher. It was only a matter of time. And then, you know, the fourth thing is, you know, we, we like to try and work out whether the market's making a mistake. And I think a lot of people were, I think, factoring in spot price, um, even though most contract prices were higher and most longer term forecasts were higher. And I think uranium had completely fallen off the radar, apart from maybe a couple of investors in Australia. There was very little institutional interest in uranium in Australia. And as a result, that's what got my interest. And so we always like to kind of talk to the brokers, talk to the analysts, work out what people are talking about. But, but a lot of the time, we're trying to work out what they're not talking about. And that's usually the most interesting thing. That is a very interesting approach. I, I spoke to um, to Nick Griffin from, from Munro Partners um, some months ago, and he was talking to me about stuff-ups. When, when you when you realise that you've you've made a mistake or that not made a mistake, but you you've probably either been too early or too enthusiastic over a story. H- how do you go through the process of, of I guess working out whether you have made not a suboptimal investment decision, should we say, as opposed to a stuff up? How do you go through that process of then baiting whether to to cut it or whether to persevere or whether the market's wrong or whether you're wrong? Is that a a challenging process for you guys? I think it's a challenging process for anyone to admit you're wrong. And so it's not easy. But one thing I think that regal is that we give individual portfolio managers a lot of responsibility. And so just to cut something, they don't have to turn up at investment committee and do a presentation on why they're wrong and why they have to change the position, um, they can just go and cut it, which is good because I think that makes us better in our decision-making if, you know, we're not worried about losing face with other members in the team. But, look, I think one thing that we're good at is looking and listening to the market and, you know, I often like just to invest over time. And one of the things I like to do is if the stock's going up, then I buy more. And if the stock's going against me, then... That's when I start to worry and that's when I start to question myself and just kind of circling back to that four-step process. Uh, you know, we have a four-step in our process is where's the market making a mistake and there's an old saying, I think, you can't identify who the sucker at the poker table is, then you're probably the sucker. And so, you know, as part of that four-step in our process, we want to try and identify where the market's making a mistake and if we can't work out, you know, why is the stock going down, is it temporary or is it, permanent, is there something going on, then that's when we start to worry. 
And so if the stock's falling because a big shareholder's lost a mandate or if it's coming out of an index, um, they're things that we can probably live with. But if there's something going on that we don't know about, then that's when we start to panic. So as far as retail investors go, because a lot of our uh, members are just, uh, you know, mum and dad uh, either looking after their self-managed super funds or or trading the market or just investing for growth or whatever, what's the best advice you can give to uh, the listeners out there in terms of uh, investment? What have you gleaned over those 40 years of buying shares? Well, I think one of the best pieces of advice I can give people and some people might think this is ironic, is don't over-trade. But, um, yeah, take a long-term view of things. And I think, you know, last year during COVID, it's a great example of that. Things looked very bleakest at the bottom um, and a lot of people panicked out. And I think the lesson was it's important to stay the course and and um, take a longer-term view. I still remember my first two investments. Um, I think I bought Land Lease around $4 um, and I think I bought BHP around similar price, $4 or so, and I, I sold my BHP to Robert Holmes Accord. I think it must have been around 1989 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was a genius because I doubled the money. But um, <laughs> I held it a lot longer, then I would have made a, a lot more money. And we've all got stories like that, you know. I, like many other investors, sold my afterpay shares way too quickly and um, I should have just held them. So even though we have a big team, even though we will all work very, very hard, Sometimes the best thing that we can do is do nothing and just let our stocks run. You know, a lot of people, as I said, might find that ironic because we are maybe you know a large trader in the market um, and we do do a lot of trading. But the, the secret thing is that most of our returns come from our core positions. Those stocks and those positions that we don't trade too much, um, they're the drivers of most of our returns. It's funny, isn't it? Um, you mentioned that the Robert Holmes Court BHP a story that there is a famous story in the market and I was told this it was a, a year or two before my time coming to Australia but there was one operator when the bid happened he brought out a bucket into the middle of the trading floor yelled out BHP whatever the price was for the bid from from Homes Accord like eight dollars bid there's the bucket put your slips in and then all the all the other operators just wrote the slips and just put in the bucket of how many shares they wanted to sell. It was, it's kind of, uh, it was a famous market floor story. BHP, $8 bid, there's the bucket, fill it. Yeah, <laughs> it was a different world back then, wasn't it? Now we're, it, everything's electronic and we've probably lost something as a result. But... Yeah, well, we certainly lost those kind of stories, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, it's very much a different world. Now, Phil, reporting season's over. We've, we've, we've seen the back of it. Obviously, a very busy time for you guys uh, trying to get to the bottom of that. And then even afterwards, the amount of meetings, I guess, you must take, which would be astronomical with the companies. What, what's your overall impression of uh, reporting season? Was it a good one? Is it enough to keep the market where it is? Well, I think more than ever before, reporting season probably didn't matter. Some of the best performing stocks coming out of reporting season are, are those um, opening up trades. Stocks like Qantas and Star have probably really been hurt by the lockdown as investors look toward the world returning to normal, have actually had very strong share price performance. And so I, I think the lesson is the market's looking through COVID. Um, the market's assuming we get through this. Um, if you can look at countries like the UK where we have a lot of friends, They've kind of returned to normal, and even though new cases are spiking, hospitalisations and, and deaths certainly aren't spiking to the same extent. I think that's certainly the view uh, here in New South Wales. Is you know, We open up, just got to get on with our lives. And 
that's the view the stock market's having. And so I think the, the takeaway for investors is look through the current turmoil of lockdowns and things like that and start investing for the longer term and, and for a post-pandemic world. Now, uh, Marcus, today we had a bit of a... Um a theme a month or two ago when we had a, a what we called a one-stop portfolio, which which came about because we had a gentleman that had invested, I think it was about 150 grand uh, he started out with in um, Kidman, which got taken out by Wes Farmers. He then parlayed that into Liontown and turned it into 12 million. Uh, judging by the performance of Liontown at the moment, he's up to about 20 million. So uh, he's done extraordinarily well. So we came up with this idea of this one-stop portfolio. So the idea, I guess, is that it's massively high conviction. So if I said to you, you had one stock that you could pick out of all the stocks out there that you, you wanted to hold, if you're down to your last 25,000 bucks, for instance, what would that one stock be? What would you go, this is this is my favourite conviction pick? Well, that's a great question, Henry, and I've got to say I am biased and I can't go past RF1. <laughs> that's our uh, investment fund, as I said, 39% per annum and uh, great diversification. And so um, what I like about that is I'm watching it every day and I know oh, hopefully there's going to be no surprises. So, yeah, look, obviously you could have a, a fling at a, a lithium stock or something like that. Yeah. It's a little bit more high risk. You wanted something at the higher risk end rather than um, RF1. I would probably go to something like the stock you mentioned earlier, which is Big Ten Can, uh, just raised $100 million or so. And I think they're on the cusp of really having a good, two or three years where the stock can go up two or three times. It, it certainly looks like their acquisition of BrainShark looks like a, a bit of a company maker. I know that a lot of people I've talked to over the last sort of year or two have compared it to Salesforce in some respects. It's like the, the Aussie version of Salesforce. So it, it's one that's been on our radar and I've had it, I, I run a, uh, a small cap portfolio here at uh, Marcus today, and it's certainly uh, it's, it's been part of that, that for some time. All right, well, if RF1, I, I've got to say, 39%, you can't go past it. Let's face it, you, you guys have absolutely killed it, knocked the lights out. Even the, the, the distribution was enormous. It, w- it was a huge <laughs> distribution. So let's, let's go the other way then. What's the one stock that you think is so overvalued that you're really happy to have a short on? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question. Sorry, um, that was a question without notice to some extent, but it's, just, it's interesting. If, if, you know, I, can, I can certainly see RF1 being a, a fantastic story over the long term. But what about on the, on the other side? Look, probably you know, we, we don't always like talking about our shorts. I think you know, a lot of management teams take it personally when often it's just the, the valuation that we don't like. You know, one stock that has been a, a bit of a widowmaker on, on the short side for many, many years has been Tesla in the US. Mm. And, you know, we avoided shorting Tesla for a long period of time. But when it joined the S&P 500 late last year, that was a good time, we thought, to put a short on. It was about 100 billion dollars of buying as a result of joining the S&P 500. And look, Tesla's got a great product. You know, people that own Teslas are almost religious about how much they love their Teslas. fact of the matter is that competition's coming and the competition is coming like a tsunami with every single motor vehicle manufacturer in the world moving into electric vehicles in really big size. And that is going to change the economics for Tesla. And at the same time, Tesla continues to trade at a huge valuation. And so 
we're probably happy to stay short Tesla at the moment. Well, I, I've got to say, I, I, I've always thought that uh, the cars are great and I could never work out the, the, the massive attraction of the stock, but it has defied. Luckily, I haven't been in the position to sell Tesla because otherwise I'd be gone out the door backwards. It's been... It's been extraordinary, really, in some respects, hasn't it? It has been a great story. Just finally, Phil, uh, talking about, I mean, as far as RF1 goes, how much of your portfolio is is overseas? Uh, how much in- international is, is part of the portfolio? Look, we display this on the back of the newsletter every month, and generally I think around 30-odd percent is international. Most of what we do is in Australia, but we do have... Some of our strategies focused globally, but mainly focused on Asia. And so, for example, our long-short healthcare strategy with Dr. Craig Colley runs, that has a, a number of companies across the Asian region where we're benefiting from, you know, Asian populations and increased spend on healthcare. And so, yeah, we do a lot across Asia um, and from time to time where we think we have an edge, we also invest in North America or Europe. I was just going to finish off, I guess. Do you actually hedge any of the overseas exposure in terms of currency or is it take it as it is? Yeah, no, we hedge all our material currency exposure. Right, that makes sense. Phil, it's been absolutely delightful chatting to you. We've, uh, we've run over a little bit of time, so I won't hold you up any longer. And it's been really fascinating chatting and connecting again after 20-odd years. It's been terrific, and I'm, we've had some great insights. And I really look forward to uh, releasing this into the wild because I'm sure it will be very, very popular. And you guys have done extraordinarily well. And uh, congratulations on your performance. I think it's been amazing. So well done. Uh, thanks, Henry. Great to see you, and good luck with your investing. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. See ya.